Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, again, we are thankful that we can assemble together freely without fear of any kind of opposition, government interference, or anything else, and that we can freely study your word. Father, as we study your word and continue to study about the skills that we are to develop as we grow and mature and as necessary for our growth and maturity, we pray that you will help us as we study these things to have greater clarity of how we grow spiritually. And especially in the area of the command to love one another as our Lord loved us. Very difficult, in fact, impossible apart from God the Holy Spirit. So, Father, this is a challenge for us, and we all recognize that, and we pray that you would give us greater insight today as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, for the last couple of months, we've been taking time to study these spiritual skills. It's a review. We all need to be reviewed on this again and again because it is our trend to forget. To We need to hear it expressed in slightly different ways, but we need to be reminded of this. Now, what is a skill? A skill is something that uh, even if we have a natural talent in that area, we need to develop it. A skill is something that we are taught. Uh, it is something that we have to practice. And as I like to say, it is not practice that makes perfect. It is perfect practice that makes perfect. And it takes time to develop these things. And we have this enemy within that is our sin nature that fights this. And we have trends that go against this. But we have to focus and concentrate. That's part of it. We're, we're not mystics. We don't believe that somehow that when we confess sin and the Holy Spirit fills us that he takes over our volition and that automatically we grow. That's not what happens. That's mysticism. That's also a violation of the first divine institution of individual responsibility. We are responsible to apply the word, which means we have to think about it. Of course, as we walk by the Spirit, he is bringing these things to mind, and we have to think about it. We have to think about our lives, and it is under the word of God that we are rebuked, and we are corrected. Those are two things that most of us aren't real happy about. We don't like being rebuked by anyone, and when it's the Word of God, we just hope it's in the privacy when we're sitting in the chair church and nobody's looking at us as we squirm and uh, mentally recognize that I'm not doing such a good job at this after 20, 30, 40, 50, 70, 80 years. And um, 
but it's practice and it's slow because we're we're fighting I, I always like the analogy of a fight we're fighting an uphill battle it's like driving a car we have a brake and we have an accelerator and we have a new only drive and neutral because it's when it slips into neutral we just go downhill so we have to constantly be braking to stop, shifting it into drive, and then going back up the hill. And it's always uphill because we have three enemies. We have the enemy in this, uh, the angelic revolt of Satan and the forces of demons. Remember in Ephesians 6.10 when we get there that Paul says that our enemies are not flesh and blood. We think they are, but those who are in flesh and blood are just the minions and the dupes and the useful idiots for Satan's ploys and plots to, to run the world and show that he can do a better job than, than God can. So that's the external enemy, and, and he never can make us do anything. So we can't fall back like some people do, oh, well, the devil made me do it. Can't do that. We have volition, so no matter how much the devil may tempt us or sift us, as Jesus used that term related to uh, the, the testing of Peter, uh, we have to decide to follow it. That means that it's always our fault. We can't say, well, Lord, the devil made me do it, or we can't blame other people like Adam did uh, and very, very uh, underhandedly blaming God, he said, it's the woman. So he blamed Eve, and then he said, but it's the woman you gave me. So he's really blaming God. It's all your fault, because that's what we do. And we try to solve these problems on our own, but, you know, we have to walk by the Spirit. So we have to con confess sin after we fail, and then we can go forward. So we have to deal with the fact that we live in the devil's world, and the devil's world system puts pressure on us with all kinds of both external uh, temptations as well as internal. That is, those, those ways of thinking that are designed to make us think we can solve our problems on our own and make life work on our own apart from God. So we have to deal with the devil. We have to deal, deal with his world system. And then all of that appeals so much to our own sin nature that just wants to go along with it. And the only thing that can stop it is, is our volition. Our volition is sort of the traffic cop to stop and go. Hit the, as we teach the kids, I think, uh, they have a, um, <clears throat> they have a green light and a red light. So you can say no or yes. That's your volition. And so you have to make those, make those decisions. Well, right now we're studying about love. And love is a challenge in some ways for us because we want to think of love in categories that the world says are there in terms of romantic love or in terms of emotion. And I've said this prior to today that we look love up in the dictionary and it defines it as an emotion. But that's not how the Bible defines it. But the, the, the pressure from the way the world thinks is its emotion. And a lot of churches 
have fallen into that trap. And so they try to manipulate our emotions in various ways in worship. And uh, we all hear this from different people. They do it in different ways. Some some of them today do it. They dim down the lights and they uh, have smoke machines to try to create what they think is an ambiance of worship. But that's not what the Bible talks about. And love in the Bible is something that is clearly defined for us, and uh, we have a lot of examples of it. So that's what we've been looking at. So in this uh, lesson, we're going to be looking at understanding the two types of uh, Christian love or biblical love, uh, which are, in the second point, defining love as biblical love for all mankind and then Christian love for one another. And then, if time allows, we'll start looking at the biblical characteristics of love. And we started this last time, so what we've already learned is that these basic spiritual skills that we've looked at, such as walking by the Spirit, uh, faith rest drill, and especially grace orientation, and then doctrinal orientation, that is orienting our thinking to being gracious, as God is gracious, and orienting our thinking to what the Bible teaches. And so those are fundamental to understanding how to love God, how to love one another, how to be occupied with Christ, and how to fully experience that joy that Christ has given us. So we've looked at these basic spiritual skills, and last time... I use this diagram. Now, the reason I use this diagram is because no diagram can that I have found a way to create it uh, communicates the dynamic of spiritual growing uh, in in the way that we actually grow. Uh, we gr- we don't grow by first of all establishing sort of a base base floor, and then once we get that all settled and we can do that, then we go to the next one. It doesn't operate like that. It's dynamic. You come to church right now, let's say you're new and you've just been coming a short time and we've been teaching about love. Well, that's more of an advanced spiritual skill, but you can still learn how to love one another and practice that, but it really is going to be based more on understanding grace orientation, which we studied earlier. And so you come and the message has to do with grace or it has to do with love. Then what happens is you develop in that area. And it may be some time before you hear and uh, begin to learn some things about how to claim promises. And that takes a little more time. And so you grow a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept, and that is how we grow. It's it, but this is like a blueprint. So if you're an architect and you have and you draw a blueprint, you don't expect the people doing the construction to to do it in the order that you drew it. You know, the plumber may not be able to get there to do what he needs to do for another month, but the electrician can get there and get some things done he needs to do this week. And then um, maybe the uh, carpenters can get there and begin to do some other things at, at their time. So it doesn't always fit a specific flow plan. The reason I say that is a lot of people have thought that, well, when you use a diagram like this, you have to do first you learn this, then you learn that, then you learn this, and then you learn that. And that's not reality. 
So we learn to confess sin, and automatically once we confess sin, we're back in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and He fills us with His Word. And so then we learn three basic skills that are foundational to everything else, and that's learning to trust God, uh, believing His promises, resting in His promises, Then we learn about his grace. We learned that at the beginning at the cross that Christ died for our sins and that he did everything for us and that salvation is a free gift. It's not something we earn. It's not something we work toward. It's not something that is progressive. The instant we trust Christ as Savior, God imputes or reckons to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ, and it is, as it were, we are robed with the white robes of Christ's righteousness, and when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sins, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We are not made sinners. Some of you come from a Roman Catholic background, and back in the 4th century when Jerome was translating the Greek text into uh, into Latin. He didn't understand the difference between in, from the Greek word in the significance of a declaration of righteousness versus being made righteous. And so this is why when you come to the 16th century and you have the doctrine of justification by faith alone being recovered, they recognize that justification is based on a forensic or judicial declaration from the Supreme Court of Heaven that we have been, because God gives us righteousness on the basis of our faith in Christ, and we are declared righteous because we have Christ's righteousness, not because we've been made any better than we were before. It's just that we have been given new life in Christ, but we still have that same nasty sin nature. So we learn grace, and we learn that we need to learn the Word, and so the Word of God is given to us to teach us. And it is for teaching, it is for rebuke, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That is how we should live. And so as we learn those things, we soon come to learn that we're living in light of eternity. We're living for a future, that this is just a, this life on this earth is just a speck in terms of all of eternity. But yet our spiritual growth here will be rewarded and we develop capacity for our relationship with God. And so that all becomes part of uh, what we will be doing in eternity. And then we develop in our area of personal love for God, uh, biblical love for all mankind, that is those who are not Christians, And then we have another category for Christians, Christian love for other believers. Jesus said that we are to love one another as he loved us. One another throughout the New Testament relates to other believers, not to uh, those who are not believers and then occupied with Christ. And then those three all work together. End result is we grow in our capacity for joy and our capacity for happiness. So we have our soul that goes into the soul fortress, and this soul fortress is just a metaphor for the protection of God, and how we stay there, which is where real life takes place, is based on applying these uh, spiritual skills. And so we're up to the point where we are learning about uh, love for God 
and love for one another. So we've already learned that the pattern for understanding love is the cross, that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God loved us in this way that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Second, we learned that love for God is measured by obedience and not, not emotion. Because in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, God told, told Israel that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in the New Testament, Jesus tells the disciples and the church that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So love is measured by our obedience to God. And as we grow, our love for God then uh, motivates us to press on to spiritual maturity. So we grow in our capacity of love for God, and that in turn motivates us forward in our spiritual growth. So, Old Testament. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he summarized it. He said, the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That summarized the first part of the Ten Commandments. And then he said that the second is like like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's what we've been talking about. In Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, uh, God says this, I mean, Moses says this same thing again. He says, therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments and commandments always. Now, this isn't legalism. This is because legalism is doing something and then God's going to pat me on the back and he's real pleased with us and he blesses us for that. That is not how we should understand this. This is the code of conduct for how a believer is supposed to live because of your relationship to God, and that demonstrates love. And we looked at our passage in Luke 10, 27 to 28, where he, Jesus quoted this in answer to the question of what is the greatest commandment. So all of that just by way of review because we haven't been talking about this for a couple of weeks because last week was Resurrection Day. So there's a connection between these skills, the personal love for God, and second, our biblical love for all mankind, B-L-A-M, Christian love for one another, C-L-O-A. So that's uh, that's the abbreviations I'm using in the charts and occupation with Christ. They intersect the more we focus on God and the more we learn the scriptures, the more we're not going to also put our focus on Christ, fixing our hope on Christ who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, uh, Hebrews uh, 12.2. Now, we have to understand some things about the Mosaic Law. A lot of people think, well, the Mosaic Law was given to Israel so that they could get saved. But that's not true. In fact, I think that in in the Schofield Reference Bible, Schofield makes this error that we are never saved. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. It was to show that nobody could keep the law. And therefore, they were in need of a gracious salvation. They couldn't earn it or deserve it. And the Mosaic Law doesn't begin the ethical standards. So, for example, when it says don't commit murder, murder was wrong since Cain killed Abel. 
don't commit adultery. Well, that didn't become wrong when the Mosaic Law was written in 1446 B.C. It had been wrong ever since creation. So you have to understand that the Mosaic Law was written for Israel, only for Israel, and it was basically their law code, their constitution. And... Um, there are summary principles that are given in the Ten Commandments for loving the Lord our God. So you have these Ten Commandments, but half of them relate to how you love God, and the other half relate to how you love uh, one another. And all but one of them are repeated in the New Testament. And the one that's not repeated in the New Testament is the one related to the Sabbath, And that's the difference between what is called covenant theology and dispensationalism. In covenant theology, everything in the Torah is still in effect unless the New Testament says it's not. Dispensationalism has a slightly different look, says since Christ abolished the law, that's in Ephesians 2, 12 to 14. Christ abolished the law, all of it. If it's repeated, then it's still in effect. The only thing, aside from the ritual laws and um, uh, and the, the laws related to like safety and diet, things of that nature, those were not repeated. Of the Ten Commandments, all were repeated except for the Sabbath. So these are these ideas and principles are still there, and that's important because. The concept of love, love for God, love for man, are embedded in those other nine commandments. So we've looked at this a little bit, and I'm going to expand on it, expand on it this morning. To understand love, we have to begin with God and the illustration of our salvation. So if you tell somebody you love them, you ought to be thinking by now, saying, well, is this really biblical love? We start with not our feelings, but we have to start with what does the Scripture say? How does the Scripture define love? Is this biblical love? So 1 John 4, 9, another passage goes along with John three sixteen and uh, Romans 5, 8. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. That's how it defines it. And verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us first. He initiates. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is to die for our sins. And it satisfied or propitiated God in terms of his righteousness and his justice. So from this, we learn that love originates from God doesn't originate with man. God created man in his image and likeness with the capacity for love, but to learn what love is, you have to start with God, not with human experience. So love, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. That's a universal principle, he states there. Love is from God. It starts with God, not with human experience. And 1 John 4.11, he says, Beloved, if, and that's a first-class condition, since, and it can be translated as since here, since God loved us in this way, in what way? How did God love us? John 3.16, 
For God loved the world in this way. It's the same word, Greek word used in both places. It means, I'm giving you an example. This is how God loved us. And since God loved us by sending his son to propitiate us, or propitiate God, as it were, uh, we also ought to love one another. So that second part gives us a, a command that we are to love one another. So we have our passages of John 3.16 and Romans 5.8, which I've just quoted. And I'm going to give you an attempt at a definition. So love is a mental attitude. It's not an emotion. It's a mental attitude, a way of thinking about yourself and the way of thinking about others in your life. So it's a mental attitude toward others which desires the best for them, according to the standards of God's integrity, not according to what I think is best for you, but according to what God thinks is best for you. What does that mean? That means I've got to understand enough of the Word of God to understand what God thinks is best for all of us. I can't just go around saying, well, I think this is best for you. Who cares? That's selfish. You're just trying to manipulate people. I have to understand what God thinks is best for us. That gives it an eternal, immutable uh, standard. So what's best for them according to the standards of God's integrity, not my opinion, and then we think and act. Now those are two important words. We think a certain way about people. Because sometimes, and we all do this, we go somewhere, do something. My favorite illustration always comes from traffic in the parking lot. And even though we don't say, well, that jerk or that idiot, we think it. So it, we got to quit thinking that. Because it affects how we think and how we act. Somewhere somebody said you should not judge other people. So that's judging it. You say you're an idiot. Well, you may be right, but that doesn't mean you're right in judging them, okay? this Only the Holy Spirit can change us. Uh, so we have to think and act toward them consistent with that desire and standards of God. Now, that's a big task, but since the Holy Spirit's omnipotent, he can actually do that. But we have to walk by the Holy Spirit for that to happen. So, fourth point, biblical love for all mankind is based on Leviticus 19.18, the second half of the verse. The whole verse reads, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge. That means, you know, you can't have a grudge, you can't bear, you can't hold things against people. Uh, you don't bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That last part is God's giving his stamp on that, and that's his order. So then God gives us a lot of examples. So not only do we have the command stated within, in those exact words many times, but it, the, we have examples of it in, in just stated in other words. So in Exodus 23, 4, and 5, one example is if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray. You know, you're going down the street and you see your neighbor's car parked over in some apartment complex. You don't just say, oh, golly, so-and-so, what a creep. His car got stolen. And then forget about it. 
So you see that your enemy's ox or his donkey has gone astray, and you shall surely bring it back to him again. Because if it was your car and somebody stole it and parked it down the street, you'd want him to bring that back to you and to alert the police. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. In other words, don't, you know, if you're... uh, neighbor is abusing his beast of burden and you're there to relieve the beast of his burden do so another example in leviticus 19:34 the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you now some people want to take this and apply it to problems we have with the border right now and it applies in a personal way the way you treat people but it doesn't have a one-to-one correspondence. Why? Because is there a contract between God and the United States for this land? No. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have borders because in Acts 17, Paul says God established borders and for people and the raising up and the tearing down of kingdoms. So borders are important. You try to read through Judges, I mean Joshua. When you get towards the end of Joshua, God is defining the borders of every tribe. Borders are important to God. So this idea of no borders is just internationalism, which God uh, God, God prohibits. But this is talking about how you have a personal relationship within Israel because, see, the, Israel is given that land. And the stranger is someone who is a migrant who is coming into this land that God gave them. So God has a right to tell them how they're going to treat them. So he says, The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we are to treat people with the respect due to someone who is uh, in the image and likeness of God, But that doesn't mean that you let the criminals just come in and continue their criminal activities or all of those other things. You have to, that's that's an extension of the principle of self-defense. We have to defend ourselves at the border. And we have to defend ourselves against criminal elements that want to come in here and destroy the peace of the nation. And that is legitimate. So you can't just go in and take a verse like this out of context and say, oh, we just need to have open borders. Well, why don't you just take a 45 and blow your brains out? Because that's exactly what you're doing by having open borders. You're destroying yourself. Proverbs 24, 29, Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. In other words, don't retaliate. Don't hold that grudge. Don't try to get back at somebody because they did something wrong to you. My mother used to say, two wrongs don't make a right. I know most of you probably heard that growing up. I will do to him just as he has done to me. I'll render to the man according to his work. We can't do that if we're grace-oriented. God doesn't render to us according to our work. He doesn't, in one passage, he doesn't impute our sins to us. Deal with them in grace. In Matthew 5.39, remember, this is before the cross, so Israel's still under the law. Jesus is giving his interpretation of the righteousness of the law in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. 
And so he says to his disciples, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, what he means by an evil person, he doesn't mean a criminal who's trying to hold you up and steal your stuff, okay? The evil person there is somebody who is, uh, in context, somebody who is not right with the Lord. A lot of times, evil has to do with somebody who's not right with the Lord, not somebody who is a wicked criminal. And then he says, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, do you think there was really a cheek-slapping problem in Israel at that time? People walking around going, oh, look at him. You think that was happening? No. So if it's not a literal problem of people walking around slapping each other on the cheek, then this is a metaphor, an idiom, and we have to understand what it means. So what it means is if someone slaps you on the right cheek, if someone insults you, or you think you've been insulted. Somebody says something that belittles you, or you think it belittles you. Uh, turn the other cheek. In other words, don't respond by belittling them back. Don't respond by uh, getting irritated with them. If they're going to lower themselves to a level where they are going to be ridiculing you or insulting you or something... Don't lower yourself to that level. Continue to be kind and gracious to them. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, give him your cloak also. And again, it's the same principle. It's not like just go give, let everybody take whatever they want to out of your house. But to be, be kind to them if it's a legitimate, legitimate situation. And so if somebody compels you to go a mile, be generous with people. Uh, Same thing with verse 52. This is application of loving your neighbor as yourself. And Matthew 5.43 goes on to say, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is not talking about national policy. This is not talking about foreign policy from one nation to another. This is talking about individual having the right mental attitude towards other people, not reacting with the sin nature. It doesn't mean you let them take advantage of you or you put yourself in that place. Part of what's happening behind the scenes here is that in in Israel at that time, with the influence of the Pharisees over the last couple of hundred years, when they looked at Le- Leviticus 19.18, and it said, love your neighbor as yourself, if you're a Pharisee, a neighbor is going to be a Pharisee who agrees perfectly with you. Jesus redefined that when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. It's anyone who comes into your path. So what Jesus is talking about here, he's trying to straighten them out, that the neighbor is more than just the six people you think you agree with 100%. It has to do with how you treat everyone on the basis of grace. Now, point number five, an emphasis on Leviticus 19.18 is not legalism. 
It's not transferring a commandment from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Why do I say that? Because Leviticus 19.18 is repeated seven times in the New Testament. It's repeated four times in the Gospels, and it's repeated three times in the epistles, which are written to church-age believers. So remember the principle. If it's repeated in the New Testament, it applies to us. If it's not repeated, then it doesn't apply in this dispensation. So Paul, summarizing these commandments... He says in Romans 13:9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, he's repeating that. Did you notice a commandment from the Ten Commandments? All of those are from the Ten Commandments. Do you notice one that's not there? For you shall work six days and rest on the seventh. The sabbatical commandment is not mentioned there. But the other ones are, because they're foundational for law and order in any national entity. So in Galatians 5.14, Paul repeats it again. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. See, in in the... uh, In Hebrew, the Ten Commandments are referred to as the Ten Words. Okay? Ten ideas would be the idea, because the word word has a lot of different nuances. So all the law is fulfilled in, in really one commandment, one idea. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, you know, if you're antagonistic and you're bitter and you hold a grudge... You're going, to, you're going to be consumed by that. That's the problem with that. So you can treat people nicely, but that doesn't mean you put yourself in danger with them. But you don't hold a grudge, and you don't retaliate, and you don't seek vengeance. But that doesn't mean you let them roll all over you either. James 2.8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. So you see, Paul is saying the same thing as James. It's applying that principle is just as true today as it was in the in the Old Testament. And it's illustrated. For example, 1 Peter 3.9 doesn't say it in those words, but that's what it's saying. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And another way in which this this is stated uh, is in Philippians. We studied this on Thursday night. In Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, that's an application. It's just the same thing. Think Uh, to love others as you would have them love you. Now, here's where you think that's difficult. This is where our Lord ratcheted it up a little bit. See, on the left, we have Leviticus 19.8. It was directed to Israel. It wasn't directed to anybody else. The law was written to Israel alone. The command is, shall love. You shall love. You, he's talking to the Jews. To whom? You shall love your neighbor. 
What's the standard? As you love yourself. Now Jesus came along and gave, and he said it. This I give you a new commandment. It's not the same. It's different. He says, uh, this you are to love. Okay, so the you refers to the disciples and church age believers. It's not talking about everybody. It's talking about those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the body of Christ. You are to love who? Not your neighbor, but one another. That term is used numerous times in the scripture where we are to uh, teach one another, admonish one another, love one another, take care of one another, all these one another, pray for one another, all of these one another's that are how believers are to treat other believers in the body of Christ. It's a higher standard than loving your neighbor as yourself. Because the standard is not loving someone as you love yourself, but loving others as Christ loved you. Wait a minute. I can't do that on my own. That is impossible. I'll never do that. There's only one way that's going to happen. And that's if God is going to produce that in me. And that's the fruit of the Spirit. So what we see here are these two types of love commanded in the Scripture. Uh, The biblical love for all mankind, which is what uh, Galatians 5.14 is talking about. But remember, after Galatians 5.14, and I didn't change the verse here, but I should have, we we, we make a shift. Christian love for one another is John 13.34 and 35, that a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, not as uh, the world loves you, but you love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Now Galatians five thirteen and 14 says that it combines the two. In verse 13 it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, that is, to be selfish and retaliate and be miserly and all these other things. But through love, serve one another. See, there's that one another again. So this is love for one another in the body of Christ. And then he quotes from Galatians 5.14. But then it goes on and he talks about walking by the Spirit. And then by the time you get down to Galatians 5.20, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. But what was that first part of the fruit? Love. That's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's not produced by me. It only comes as a result of growing. So this, all of this, love for one another, love for your neighbor is is based on grace. So how do we understand Christian love? That is the love for for one another. First John, thir- I mean John thirteen thirty four to thirty five sets love as the ultimate indication of the fact that we are disciples. Not that we are believers. There's a difference. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you're a believer, you have eternal life, Christ has imp- God has imputed to you the righteousness of Christ and declared you righteous. But then you have another decision to make, and that is, am I going to grow? 
And Scripture talks about, for example, Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth is something you have to decide. Am I going to grow spiritually or I'm just glad I'm going to get to heaven? Growing spiritually is a result of studying God's Word, becoming a student. That's what a disciple is, somebody who is a student of Scripture, a student of the Lord. Are you a disciple of Christ? Do you want to be a disciple? That's the next issue. Do I really want to grow uh, spiritually? And the Lord says that that ultimately what will set you apart as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's what he said, if we have love for one another. And what we learn in in Galatians 5.20 is that only comes as a result of spiritual growth in the fruit of the Spirit. So we've talked about the greatest example of love is God's love for us. And we can't make that happen in our lives. We can't do it. So we get into Galatians 5. 5.13 and 14 and Galatians 5.16 and I think I said 5.20 a minute ago. It's 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. So Galatians 5.13, he says, through love serve one another. That's Christian love for one another. Galatians 5.14, he talks about just biblical love for all people because that's closely connected. And then the command to walk by means of the Spirit and then the result of that over time, then the Holy Spirit produces this fruit. It's not fruits. It's one word, fruit. And it has different facets. It's character. It's the character of Christ is what is being produced in us. Fourth point is that Christian love for one another includes forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, which we're approaching in our section in Ephesians, be kind to one another. Kindness is a positive attribute. It's not just an absence of mental attitude sins towards other people. It's that we are to be kind to one another. That's a positive. Kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, and the word there is the verb charizomai from the noun charis, which means grace. So charizomai means to be graciously forgiving toward one another. And what's the standard? Even as God in Christ forgave you. That's really convicting. That's our standard. We're to forgive other people because we offended God much more than whoever you can think of ever offended you. And God forgave you on the basis of grace, and we're to do likewise. So again, our definition of Christian love, it's a mental attitude toward others which desires the best for them according to the standards of God's integrity, not the best. And, you know, that could even mean punishment. Let's say you take somebody who's done something criminal. Now, does God, in God's love, does he punish people? Certainly. So somebody does something criminal. I remember some years ago there was a woman 
on death row in Texas who had committed murder, and she was condemned to death. And all these Christians were going, oh, but she's a Christian now, and she shouldn't be punished. God punishes people, believers. He punishes believers all the time because of what? Because of their disobedience. Now, he's long-suffering, which means he's very patient. And he may not drop the anvil on you out of a thousand times that you or I deserve it. He doesn't do that. But it may come to a point where, well, we're going to have to have a lesson here. So love is a mental attitude that desires the best for them according to God's standards. But don't pick and choose which standards you're going to apply. And acts toward them, thinks and acts towards them, uh, consistent with that desire and standards. It's impossible apart from a walk by the Holy Spirit. So in terms of application, number one, we need to live our lives as much as possible by walking in partnership with the Holy Spirit. That's what the language means, walk by means of the Spirit, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And we're moving together. That fellowship means partnership in going to a common goal, toward the goal of spiritual maturity. God wants us to be like Christ. The Holy Spirit wants to conform us to the image of Christ. Sometimes we don't want that then there's going to be a little bit of a problem. Some people call it a come-to-Jesus moment. It's a come-to-the-Holy-Spirit moment. Second, think and pray about our reactions to others when we know we are not exhibiting Christian love. Now, when we get all emotional, sometimes that's very difficult. But we have to stop and think. The Christian life is based on thinking, not on emoting. And then third, don't get discouraged because you fail 1,600 times today already and you're getting discouraged. It takes time to grow. It takes a lot of time to grow. God's got to work work with our sin nature, dealing with it. Don't get discouraged in developing a biblical love for others. It's a lengthy process related to our own spiritual growth. And that involves thinking about it, because the Holy Spirit isn't going to just say, oh, good, you went to church today, it's going to be easier for you this afternoon. No, probably not. You'll be tested in this area once or twice in the next hour. But what the Scripture says is that we grow, we grow incrementally, and it takes time. But we have to think about it. We can't just think, oh, the Holy Spirit's just going to zap me, and I'm not going to have this problem anymore. I have to exercise my volition. I'm going to get in a situation and I have to say, okay, I'm going to do this the way Scripture says I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to react in anger or irritability or dis, uh, you know, where I'm just uh, disgusted with somebody. I need to act on the basis of what the Word of God says. And it's a challenge to get us ourselves to the point where we even conscientiously think about that before we fail. And, and But that's a big victory is to conscientiously think, oh, yeah, I should be applying this principle of love for one another right now, but I don't feel like it. Well, at least we thought about it. It came to our mind. And after a while, we'll pray about it some more, and, and we'll think about it, and we'll apply it for five or ten seconds. It's growth. It's progress. So don't get discouraged. That's part of what Scripture says when it talks about 
enduring, staying in the difficulty, enduring, persevering, going forward. So we'll stop here this morning and just be reminded that there are these two categories for our love. We're to love our neighbor. That means anybody we come into contact with. We're to love them like we love ourselves. That's the standard. That was an Old Testament standard when they didn't have the Holy Spirit. But now in the church age, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit produces love, and we are to love one another as Christ loved us. And that's the mark of discipleship. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged. It's not easy for any of us. We all have a very strong will, sin natures, and too often we yield to that when we ought not, for we have been given new life in Christ, in Romans 6. And we ought not enslave ourselves to our sin nature again, but we are to recognize that we are uh, slaves of righteousness, and you are our master. And so often we just face this struggle, as Paul mentions in Romans 7, that I don't do what I know I ought to do, and I do what I know I shouldn't do. But the solution comes in the next chapter of Romans, which is Romans 8, that, that we are to walk according to the Spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our resolve to do that, bringing it to our consciousness. Father, we pray, too, for anyone here who's never trusted Christ as Savior, anyone watching or seeing this at some point in the future, uh, thinking that somehow uh, being in the right church, being a nice person, being a good person, doing kind things gets you to heaven, it doesn't. That the, we're all sinners and everything is tainted by sin, but Christ died for our sins, the Scripture says. And that he paid the penalty, and all that is required is to trust in him, rely upon him, that he is the reason that our sins are paid for, and he is the one upon whom we rely to get us into heaven. So, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to, to study your word, to be reminded of the challenges before us. And may God the Holy Spirit strengthen us in the inner man to continue to grow. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.